So we have two passages this morning, and the first one is Isaiah um, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. So feel free to Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut off a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Our second passage is in the book of Matthew, Chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants They bit one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this. And it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Uh, good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Hill. It's great you can join us for church this morning. Please have um, Matthew 21 open. That's where we're going to be spending our time. Uh, so as we come to God's word, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the scriptures. We thank you for your word that you 
speak to us through it. Lord, we pray now that you might transform us by your word so we might, be have, we might have confidence uh, that Jesus is the king reigning and ruling, uh, that we might be able to follow him to the end, uh, that we might be confident in our, um, our place as your children in this world that is so hostile to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered to yourself... Uh, this. Uh, Have I made the right choice to be a follower of Jesus? Have I made the right choice to be a follower of Jesus? Uh, Stephen lived in a small mountain village in Laos. Uh, Growing up, he knew nothing other than Buddhism, and it was the kind of Buddhism uh, that the local authorities enforced uh, at all times. Uh, Stephen tells a story that later in life, he was listening to a Christian uh, radio broadcast in his country, and he discovered Jesus for the first time. Uh, Stephen said, I wanted to follow Jesus. Then I met a man who invited me into his house and gave me a book, the Bible. I read it and understood it, and then I accepted Jesus into my life. Uh, Stephen then began to lead a small group in his house where they would gather to read the Bible and worship God together. Uh, Soon, uh, the authorities in his village uh, found out about his small group, and his cousin, who happened to be the village chief at the time, confronted him about it. Uh, Stephen recalls, my cousin got so angry, he punched me in the head multiple times until I fell on the ground. After beating me, my cousin gave me the ultimatum, abandon Jesus or be cast out of the village. Now, how would you feel if you were in Stephen's situation? You can imagine him asking that question, right? You can imagine him asking, have I made the right choice to be a follower of Jesus? Stephen chose to keep following Jesus and planned to leave the village as soon as possible. He wasn't able to get away before he uh, had to endure another beating. And then as he left the village, they set fire to his home and all his possessions. Now, you can imagine some of Stephen's Buddhist neighbours watching all this happen. Maybe some of his friends. Maybe they had heard the truth about Jesus from Stephen. And then they witnessed what, what took place. What might they be thinking as they watch on? Well, they might be forgiven for thinking, hey, Stephen, is it really worth it? Even if it's true, should I risk everything for what Jesus has to offer? Maybe a little bit closer to home. Even uh, It seems like every day the, the village chiefs of our secular culture, they're kind of turning up the thermostat, um, uh, holding to the belief that the Bible is the word of God. It goes from, it's gone from being just a little bit weird like it was in the past to now it's being considered by some as outright evil. Uh, obeying Jesus' command to share our faith, to make disciples of others, well, that's gone from being just a little bit annoying to now it's considered dangerous. Uh, if we were to go out there and encourage people to know Jesus and then conform their life to his word, uh, well, that used to be a little bit preachy. Um, but now it's going to be possibly illegal in some circumstances. And that's not an exaggeration. Increasingly, we're feeling the heat in our jobs, in our relationships. And I think for some of us, we're feeling the heat when we think about our children and the future that they're going to inherit if they're followers of Jesus. I mean, if I choose to bring my children up to know, love and serve the Lord Jesus, what's that going to mean for them socially or economically? Or relationally, am I setting them on a harder path through life? 
And when uh, we can look at the world around us and our neighbours and our friends and our colleagues and we can wonder if this is what it's going to cost me, have I made the right choice following Jesus? Or maybe you're here today and you're looking into the claims of Jesus. Uh, And maybe you're increasingly convinced that, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Christ, that he did die for your sins. And you might be looking in from the outside and asking the question, should I make the choice to follow Jesus and take that risk? I mean, I can see which way the wind is blowing at the moment, and it's not good. Uh, the open hostility of a powerful Christ-heading culture and wondering whether we've made the right choice, the choice to leave the majority culture, to leave the wide and easy path and follow Christ and take that narrow road. It's not just our situation. Uh, it was a situation faced by the original readers of Matthew's Gospel in the first century. And the aim of Matthew's Gospel was to give them confidence. Confidence to keep following, to keep trusting Jesus despite the risks, despite the opposition, despite everything that it would cost them. And not just keep trusting Jesus, Matthew wants them to believe that Jesus really does right now at this very moment have all authority in heaven and on earth. Power and authority as the risen King, the Son of God. And knowing that to be true, that they would obey his command in chapter 28 to go and make disciples of all nations knowing that they go with the authority of Jesus, the risen Lord and King. And if all of that's going to happen, if they're going to keep following Jesus, if they're going to keep preaching Jesus while they feel the heat from a hostile world around them, if they're going to do that, then Matthew needs to reconcile their experience of opposition with the reality that Jesus is on the throne. Reconcile their experience... uh, that Jesus, of life in this world, but the reality that Jesus is ruling and reigning over all. Because those in the trenches of the Christian life, they need to be persuaded that it's worth it. Assured that they're on the right side of history. And here at the end of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus persuades them and us by doing two things. He does two things. First, he shows the consequences that God's eternal judgment is coming on those who've rejected his son And then he shows the blessings. God's eternal kingdom is being given to those who receive his son. So the consequences and the blessings. Uh, Now, if you're with us last week, uh, Jesus' parable showed us uh, that the religious leaders, they had rejected him because they rejected his authority as God's God's promised king. Uh, And this next parable, it's aimed at those same religious leaders who rejected Jesus. And Jesus continues to remove the mask and expose the Pharisees and the chief priests. I mean, Israel's elite, uh, they looked so powerful, they looked so threatening in their position. And Jesus has said already three times in his gospel uh, that he is going to be killed at their hands in chapter 16, 17, and 20. And so Jesus knows full well what is going to happen to him in a few days in Jerusalem. And the question is, what's going to be done about those who kill God's son? Is God going to be a pushover? Will they literally get away with murder? Well, the first thing we see in this parable is that God's just judgment is coming. It's coming on those who reject his son. Have a look with me at verse 33. Verse 33, listen to another parable, said Jesus. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. 
Now, I want you to imagine there's a wealthy businessman from Wellington. Uh, he takes a, a long weekend uh, across the strait in the Marlborough region, wine country. Uh, one afternoon, uh, when the weather is significantly better than it's been this weekend, uh, he's sitting by the pool, sipping his Sablonc, and he looks across the valley and he decides he's got a new project. He's going to buy a neglected vineyard. He's going to do it up and get it producing again. It's, it's kind of a bit of a side hustle from his usual work, but the perfect kind of holiday slash retirement home, a reward to look forward to after many years of hard work. Uh, he runs a pretty big organisation back in Wellington and life is busy, so uh, he, he plans to not live there and run the vineyard himself, but to get some local wine producers in. They can manage it uh, while he looks forward to a comfortable retirement at the vineyard when the time is right. Uh, the next day he goes out and he finds the perfect place. He makes an offer on the spot, he leaves it to his lawyers to sort out the details, and then from his office in Wellington he, designed, he engages a local builder to do up the house, a kind of real grand designs masterpiece. Uh, he spares no expense at getting the vineyard humming again. Significant investment, he gets all the infrastructure in, he gets the vines healthy and producing again. Uh, it's the best equipped vinery, uh, winery in the region. The place is ready to go. He just needs some local tenants in there to look after things, to keep it ticking over. Uh, but you know what? Finding local tenants, that's no challenge. It's the opportunity to live in this brand new Grand Designs home on a picturesque vineyard with everything you need to be successful. People are literally lining up for the opportunity. It's such a great gig. Uh, now, work continues to be flat chat in Wellington. A global pandemic gets in the way, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's a couple of years between, the, between setting it all up and uh, before he's actually even able to go down there and visit. But he's keen to check on his investment, so he decides to send down a loyal employee, uh, someone who's worked in his family business for years. They've become dear friends. This is a treat for the hardworking friend, a reward for all his years of loyal service. He says, look, go down to my place in the Marlborough, take the family, all expenses paid, stay there, have a holiday on us, just check out the place and collect some of the wine and bring it home for me. Have a look at verse, verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenant to collect his fruit. It's all pretty normal and straightforward so far, but then the story suddenly turns very dark. When the loyal employee and his family knock on the door... They're not welcomed. Instead, verse 35, the tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Now what happens here, I think it, it, it's bordering on the absurd. What happens next is, is almost unbelievable. Uh, the way that Jesus tells us, it's so shocking. There's no call to the police, there's no raid on the property, Instead, in an, un, in an unbelievable act of patience, the owner of the vineyard sends another trusted, loyal group of employees to try again, to give those tenants another chance. Verse 36, he sent over other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. And then finally, in verse 37, the extent of their wickedness, the depravity of their crimes, it reaches its climax. The businessman, he puts in a call to his son, who's, who's about to finish his studies down in Dunedin, and he says, hey, son, when you've finished your exams, I want you to drive back up to Wellington, uh, but, but before you get on the ferry, I want you to stop in at the vineyard and just check, on, on, check, on, check in on things. I mean, I want you to reason with those tenants. They'll listen to you. You're my son. Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son. 
They will respect my son, he says. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. The son knocks on the door of the vineyard, but there is no change of heart, is there? Verse 39, so they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, as I tell the story, it feels a little bit ridiculous, a bit absurd. I think that's exactly how Jesus wants us to feel. Uh, this, is a, this is kind of a little bit unbelievable uh, for two reasons. First, the tenant's behavior is so shocking, isn't it? They're so selfish, so callous, so wicked. And to think that they could get away with it, it's almost unbelievable. And the second thing is, we, Jesus wants to see the extraordinary patience of the owner. This owner seems to have a patience that's beyond a normal human capacity, a willingness to endure such injustice, such insult and risk in the hope that these tenants would eventually come to their senses. It seems a little bit ridiculous that that tenants could be so wicked and that an owner could be so patient. But it's not ridiculous. It's not absurd because it's real history. You see, this is the story of God and his people. The story of the God of the Bible and the people standing right there in front of Jesus in the temple the leaders of Israel. You see, by Jesus speaking of a vineyard, Jesus is clearly referring to the people of God, the nation of Israel. Uh, just as Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 5, which we just read, uh, God's beloved nation, his precious vineyard. And so here in Matthew, it's clear that the owner Jesus speaks about is who? It's God, isn't it? God is the good, extraordinarily generous and patient master. And the tenants, they, they are the leaders of Israel. This privileged group, given this responsibility over this great vineyard, given the duty to lead the nation in faithfulness and fruitfulness. And as Jesus is saying this parable to their face, he is speaking about them. And he's speaking about their forefathers. And he's speaking about their failure to lead God's people. And see, for thousands of years, God has been sending prophet after prophet to the tenants. And prophet after prophet were rejected. Some, like Jeremiah, were stoned. Others, like Uriah and uh, Zechariah, were killed. And Jesus' verdict will be, at the end of chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those, who, who, those sent to you. But that is nothing compared to the ultimate rejection that is to come. In just a few days, they'll have the blood of the Son of God on their hands. It will be outrageous treatment of the master, just like the tenants in this story. They're loving the inheritance. Oh, yeah, give me that. But they're hating the master and hating his son, just like in the parable. They want the gifts, but despise the giver. And the wickedness and the selfishness here, it's, it's just outrageous. But so is the unbelievable patience of the master, isn't it? Beyond any human patience. Uh, we read in Psalm 103, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's the kind of God that he is. A God so committed to faithful love of his faithless people that he was willing to endure a thousand, a thousand years of this kind of obscene treatment. 
But there does come a point where God's patience runs out. And in verse 40, Jesus kind of masterfully puts this question to the religious leaders. He asks them, he asks them what ought to be done. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? Asks Jesus. And their answer on their own lips, verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crops at harvest time. Now, you can almost picture their faces as this happens, can't you? Here, these religious leaders filled with righteous indignation as they, as they pass judgment on those wretched tenants. And you can see on their face their sense of justice as they hand down a verdict, guilt, deserving of death. And of course, it's so brilliant of Jesus. You see, time after time, these are the religious leaders who have been trying to trap Jesus. But you can't take Jesus on and win. You see, Jesus has led them to declare the verdict with their own lips. He's got them to say out loud what they and their forefathers deserve for how they have treated God and for what they're about to do to him, God's son. And something I find really fascinating about this is that when the religious leaders can see the injustice and see the wickedness of the tenants, they have absolutely no hesitation to call for judgment, to call for justice. They have no issue in determining right and wrong. Which I think tells me that as humans, even humans opposed to God, we do have this sense of justice and judgment. We can see injustice and we can call for it to be made right. We only have a problem with judgment when we realize that we are on the receiving end. When we are the ones being held accountable for loving the gifts and despising the giver. But a thousand years of patience with this consistent rejection, has come to an end. And Jesus, in this parable, he's saying in no uncertain terms, so that we cannot miss it, he's saying that God's just judgment is coming against all who reject his son. Uh, and if you know a little bit about the history of Israel, you know that's exactly what happened in AD 70, just a few years later. Just as Jesus promised in that acted out parable where he turned over the tables in the temple, uh, in AD 70, Jerusalem, the city, and the temple itself was completely destroyed. The Roman army flattened it. And Jerusalem's religious elite, they were decimated. The leadership of God's people was literally taken out of their hands and given to others. And the message for those who watch on is that, Je is that giving up on Jesus and remaining under their, the, these leaders' leadership, it's a great mistake. As powerful and as impressive as they may look, as in control as they may seem, as intimidating as they might be, they're making a great mistake. They are on the wrong side of history because God's just judgment is coming against all who reject his son. But it's not just that. Secondly, it's a mistake to reject Jesus and live in fear of those who oppose him because, point two, God's eternal kingdom has been given to those who receive his son. God's eternal kingdom has been given to those who receive his son. Uh, verse 41 says this, uh, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now remember, these are the words of the Pharisees. Uh, and the judgment on Israel's leadership, it's not only brought justice and judgment to them, 
But what it does is it opens up wide the gates of the kingdom. The blessings of the kingdom are now given to others. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been gathering those others in, uh, the tax collectors, the prophets, the prostitutes, uh, the undeserving sinful people who will join him in his kingdom, who will share with him in his inheritance. And in verse 42, Jesus takes us back to Psalm 118. Now, uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, Psalm 118 has kind of like been the backing track of all of Matthew chapter 23. Uh, every single one of Jesus kind of moves here, in, sorry, in chapter 21. Every single one of Jesus moves here in chapter 21 are kind of backed by Psalm 118. Uh, Jesus says in verse 42, quoting Psalm 118, he says, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now in Psalm 118, uh, these words come from the lips of the king as, as the gates to the temple open for him. Uh, but here Jesus is the king who has arrived at the temple, but rather than the gates opening for him, he is rejected by the people of God. And that rejection is going to lead to his shocking death in a few days' time. But God will pick up this stone from the rubble and raise him to life again. And God's going to make him the cornerstone of a new reality, a new kingdom that will last forever. And in verse 44, Jesus explains even more about the identity of this stone. Verse 44, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Uh, now here Jesus is picking up images from Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we looked at the book of Daniel last year. And if you remember, in Daniel chapter 2, there's this extraordinary vision of this day that will come where this great stone will crush all the proud and rebellious uh, nations of this world. A stone uh, that would bring down the kingdoms of this world, but then would grow into a mountain that would last forever and engulf the whole world. A stone that would become an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus here is saying that he is that stone, rejected by those uh, who were to build the people of God, but becoming the cornerstone of God's eternal kingdom. A kingdom that he'll give to those who receive him. Verse 43 again. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. God's just judgment is coming on those who reject his son, but wonderfully, God's eternal kingdom has been given to anyone who receives his son. And hearing these words from Jesus and, and seeing what was coming, it must have been of such help to the original readers. I mean, you think about them, this small minority facing up against this kind of elite religious establishment, the Pharisees and the chief priests. They would have been so intimidating, so threatening, yet this tiny group had become persuaded that Jesus is the king. Yet the risks, the risks to their lives and to their comfort, to their jobs, to their, the future of their children, the risks were so great. Have I made the right choice in following Jesus? Should I risk stepping out and becoming a follower of Jesus when this is what is at stake? And the same for us today. Think back to Stephen in Laos. Could you blame him for giving in to that kind of pressure? Well, his story doesn't actually stop there. Uh, in his new village, it isn't long before Stephen's trust in Jesus was discovered again. And the village chief confronted him about it and said, you are so stupid. We don't want you here to convert people and tell others about your religion. And there were more threats of violence. We know what you're doing. We know where you live. You know what's coming for you. 
You see, Stephen's journey had been full of suffering and isolation and violence. It nearly cost him everything to follow Jesus. But Stephen refused to stop speaking about Jesus. I mean, it would have been so tempting just to throw in the towel. You're in a new village, to just start afresh. Have I made the right choice in following Jesus? Well, this was Stephen's response. He said, there are times where I feel the world, like the world is against me. I'm always reminded that if people try to kill me for my faith, the Bible says not to be afraid. They can kill my body, but not my soul. If they want to kill me, I have no problem with it, for I know where I'm going after. Now that is a man who knows the truth of these verses in Matthew 21. As powerful and as scary as his tormentors were, he knows what is coming for them. And as desperate as his situation seems, Stephen knows what is in store for him. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord is patient, but one day his patience will run out. And year after year, as this world rejects his son, one day there will be that devastating judgment. Devastating and just judgment against Stephen's persecutors. But also against the less outwardly violent, but just as determined village chiefs of our culture and of our world. And not just them. It will come against anyone who resists the rule of God's King Jesus. Now, it doesn't matter how outwardly polite someone puts it. It doesn't matter if it's wrapped up in the language of love and tolerance and freedom or even justice. There is nothing more outrageous in all of the world to take the gifts but reject the giver. The single greatest sin anyone can commit is to reject the Son of God when he comes. And so God's just judgment is coming on those who reject God's Son, Jesus. But not only that, his eternal kingdom has been handed to anybody, anyone who receives the Son. Stephen was able to remain loyal to Jesus and he's still loyal to him today despite the pressure because he knows not only is judgment coming, but he knows that he has been made a tenant, that he shares in the harvest of the king. He knows that he is no different to the undeserving tax collectors and prostitutes who turn and trust in Jesus. But with them, he has been made a, a child of the kingdom right now, an heir of the everlasting kingdom of God. And he knows there is nothing worth giving up for that. Even at the most terrible cost. And if him, what about us? Like I said, each year the thermostat is being turned up against those who would dare believe that Jesus is the king. Uh, and more than that, it's really heating up against those who would dare tell others that Jesus is the king. That others need to follow Jesus if they're going to avoid a just judgment. And so, is it worth the cost? Is it worth the cost to your future job prospects? Is it worth the cost to your relationships? Is it worth the cost to maybe your children's futures? Have you made the right choice in following Jesus? Or, if you know the gospel to be true, the good news to be true, should you make that choice to follow Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us the answer is yes. Resoundingly yes. It is worth the cost. Because God's just judgment is coming one day against anyone who is found to have rejected his son. 
but also God's eternal kingdom. It belongs to all those who have opened their hands to his grace and received him. Will you pray with me to ask for God's help to keep following Jesus? Let's pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, right now that your Son, Jesus, is the risen, reigning Lord and King. And Lord, we thank you that he will return soon to judge. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen each of us in our own lives to continue to obey him and listen to his commands. Lord, strengthen us to live for him and make disciples of him. And Lord, we pray that whatever cost we face, that you would help us remember that Jesus is reigning and ruling. Lord, strengthen us to keep trusting him. And we pray for his sake and in his name. Amen.